scripture reading this evening is from Judges chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. This is God's word. You may be seated. Does everybody have an outline? If you need one, raise your hand. Daryl Hutchinson, well done. Good and faithful servant. It's your birthday, we'll give you a gold star. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We're in Judges chapter 3. Father, thank you for the opportunity for us to come and, and to hear each other's voice of faith as we sing out to you praise and to even have a new song as the psalmists talk about a new song on our lips and in our mouth that recognizes that you have blessed us beyond our ability to see it, but we know it's there. You have transformed us, Father. You have embraced us, and for this we are eternally grateful. We are your people. Thank you for the time that we come to look each other in the eye and to remind each other that you are the core of all of our life. You are at the center. You are the one that we are becoming more and more enabled to understand as you reveal yourself to us and as we spiral into your word deeper and deeper and more frequently. Help us, Father, to have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And tonight as we study, Father, we look for you to speak to us. We pray to have that listening ear and that open heart and that mind to what it is that you say to us about this life that was lived by Othniel. Thank you, Father, for these words and thank you for the time of study. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Believe it or not, there is a do-or-die battle being waged in northern England all the way to Scotland. It is against this guy, the American gray squirrel. The Victorians, believe it or not, when they came to the United States back in the 19th century, brought the American gray squirrel to England in 1876 thinking that it would be a nice addition to their forests. They were completely and utterly wrong. The American gray squirrel is almost double the size of its native of the of its cousin, the native English red squirrel, and believe it or not, poses an incredible threat to the native red English squirrel. Not only does the American version hoard food, but carries a strain of pox that is lethal for the red squirrel. The London-based European Squirrel Initiative, yes, there is such a thing, is trying to do something about the squirrel problem. Now that, in a nutshell, no pun intended, is the problem of idolatry. Something small is introduced to where it doesn't belong. It slowly takes over. It destroys and brings the havoc but it takes more than an initiative to deal with it. 
Now, this is our fifth study in the book of Judges, and one of the things that we've talked about already earlier in the study is that it is very obvious that there is a half-hearted devotion to God that is being exhibited in the heart of the people of Israel. And the half-hearted commitment of Israel to God leaves half its heart empty and ready to receive something else, something that does not belong there. And what happens is that as that heart is being filled with all of the wrong things, it brings a destructive cycle into the history of Israel. The people rebel, usually in the form of idolatry. The Lord becomes angry. Israel becomes oppressed by her enemies as God steps back in His wrath and gives them over to the idolatry. They, after a period of time, sometimes a long period of time, they cry out to God. This is uh, 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 repentance. God raises up a Savior, Liberator, Peace Restorer, and after a time, the cycle repeats itself. Judges 3 becomes the case history. Now, there are three judges found in Judges 3. Othniel, that we're going to look at tonight, verses 7 through 11. Ehud, verses 12 through 30. And then a fellow by the name of Shamgar, only one verse. The last verse of, of Judges 3 is dedicated to him, verse 31. Those are the three judges. Now, that set the scene a little bit tonight for the entrance of Othniel as one of the judges. We begin in verse 5. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. Now, in these verses, there is a twofold decision that is taking place in the heart and the mind of the people of Israel, God's people. Number one, Israel turns away from God. God, as the core uh, value, the supreme value, their king, as, as the, the, the giver of the meaning of life and the significance of life, all of that is diminished as they turn away from God. And then number two, as they begin to turn towards the idols. Now specifically, this is Baal and this is the Asherah. Uh, Baal, we know, Asherah is uh, part of that, that Canaanite pantheon of gods, was a fertility goddess. And that is who they are turning to instead of God of the universe. How did this happen? You think about all of the things that God has done in their midst. You think about the fact that, that God is communicating with them in, in very, very direct ways. How in the world did this happen? Forgetting is a significant issue in the life of faith. Have you ever walked from one room to another to forget what you came in there for? Have you, have you ever been driving, and this, unfortunately this happens to me all the time, and started thinking about something else and forgot where to make a turn or where to take an exit? I mean, one of the jokes among the secretaries is that I'll leave my office and walk across the hall into their office and we'll forget exactly why I came in there. have to go back in. One of the commentators on Judges, a fellow by the name of Robert Bowling, rightly says that there is more going on here in the forgetting of the Lord than just a general absent-mindedness based on what is described in the text, what's next in the text. To say that Israel forgot meant that they were no longer getting their direction from God. They were no longer taking their cues from God. 
That is, they were not controlled by what they knew to be true about God, not only in their interaction with Him, but as they saw Him in the entire universe. God, God's will was a force that was being resisted by them in their heart. Now, this is the problem of not intentionally deepening one's faith. In other words, it's the problem of having a superficial faith. It's the problem of being a mile wide and an inch deep. The danger for us is that what initially is relevant and meaningful and compelling and grips us and brings joy into our life and gives a direction to our life and, and puts a, a, a lilt in our voice and lightness to our step, what initially is relevant can become irrelevant. This is why people who have committed their lives to God are called to remember to reflect and to remember. Remembering is a significant discipline in the life of faith. Sort of odd, but I think it illustrates. Think of your heart as a bucket of water that's out in the freezing cold. What happens to that bucket if it's, if it's never touched, if it's never uh, uh, touched by human hands? It becomes frozen. That bucket of water becomes frozen and it stays frozen until it's smashed. Now, in a lot of different ways, our hearts are like that. Our hearts have to be regularly impacted by the great truths of God that are revealed to us. Do you remember this passage from 2 Peter chapter 1? Peter is writing to a church and he's concerned about what's happening to them in their spiritual char character, their spiritual formation. And so he says in this second letter, he says, for this very reason... Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. What he's telling them to do is, he says, as, as God gets a hold of your life and he begins to transform you and you begin to live out the ramifications of being a person who is forgiven and a person that has received God's grace, there are things, there's sort of a layering a virtue that begins to take place in your life. There are all of these things from goodness and knowledge to self-control to perseverance to mutual affection to love that begin to layer into your life as you are transformed into God-likeness. But suppose that you don't have those after a while. Suppose you don't have them. You think about your life and you go, you know what, I could be more loving of others. I don't really seem to persevere. Something hits me and you know, I just I, I see in my own life that I kind of bail on being in fellowship and, and being in worship and, and being a servant to others. You know, there's not really a whole lot of goodness from time to time. I really feel like I'm weak in my faith. Suppose you don't have these things, what then? Now notice, Peter doesn't say that the problem is that they weren't trying very hard. You know, that's, that's kind of our go-to fallback default position that if we don't have these things happening in our life, it's because we're not trying very hard. All we've got to do is stiff upper lip, stick the chin out, you know, bow the back and get going, and all of a sudden these things will start coming to us. That's not where Peter goes. Look at verse 9. Whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind. In other words, you don't see very far. You don't see very deep. You, you don't see very well at all. There's no depth to your perception. There's, there's no long range that you see in terms of your vision for your life and a vision of God forgetting what they have been cleansed, that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Forgetting. 
not only being nearsighted, only seeing what's up close, but circle that word in your Bible, forgetting. That's the issue of forgetting what has happened to you, of forgetting of the impact of the gospel that restructures your heart and your life. And God is giving you this, this structure for life that doesn't fail. You have forgotten all of the benefits that come from the cross. That's why we are given certain things, not just to do, but to contemplate. Think about the Lord's Supper, for instance. You know, there, there are lots of, of religious groups out there that, that, that don't do this every first day of the week. One of the reasons that we do it on the first day of the week is not only did it seem to be the, the, the model of the early church, but it is, it is so incredibly important for us to slow down and to look out across an audience of people who are like-minded and like faith and to know that we're all here for one reason and one reason only, and that's because God made it so in Jesus. You know, it is very possible to go through the motions. A bit of cracker, a quick hit of grape juice. It's not really communion. It becomes the Lord's continental breakfast. And it's not a time to remember that an innocent man died so that you wouldn't have to experience what it is, or I would have to experience what we deserve. That a man, for our sins, was pierced. That it was a violent act, that something went in one side of him and came out on the other side. That blood was spilled, that there was literally a last breath that was exhaled. And it's not about a guilt trip. It's about the experience of God's love. I mean, how do you know that something is full? I mean, you pour into a glass, how do you know that it's full? when it begins to overflow. And that's what happens every time with that little, little tiny cup and that little piece of bread. We remember that there was a body and that there was blood and that there was love that was, that was present and evident and in action and engaged when a life was given, a perfect life, a life without blemish was given so that you and I might find life, that we might have significance that we might be more than conquerors in anything that we face, that God can take whatever happens to us and somehow turn it into a good, that God can somehow take a person that's impatient and mean and a gossip and slander and idle and, and, and dishonest and turn that person into a diamond. Or how about singing? Is it possible to just mouth the words and not think about what it is that you're singing? Same with the Word. Now, verses 5 through 7 are what set the scene. But then there's this major player that comes on the scene in, verses, uh, in verse 8. The anger of the Lord. The anger of the Lord. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that He sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for, say it, Eight years. Let's say it again. Eight years. Does that not sound like a long time? We'll get back to that. But what happens in verse 8 is that God gets involved. What does it mean that God's anger burns against Israel? It means more than he's just not happy. 
what it means is that Israel has done something that has violated so much a, a, a relationship and a covenant and, and um, uh, 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 an agreement. This covenant that was established between God and Israel, it has been so thoroughly dashed to the ground and broken that God has become incensed. His, his rage burns, his anger burns against Israel. And we have this fellow by the name of Kushan Rishathaim, the king of Aram Naharaim. He's brought into Israel's history. It's a very interesting name. I mean, you don't want to say it ten times in a row. But Kushan Rishathaim means Kushan the twice wicked. He's the embodiment of evil. That was the ancient world's way of saying, when you think about evil, multiply it twice, and you've got this guy over here, the head of Aram Naharaim. And for eight years, for eight years, nearly a decade, Israel suffers enslavement. They are subjected to Kushan, the twice wicked. Eight years. Again, is that not interesting? How long does it take for you to realize that you're in a mess? How long does it, does it take to realize that your life has gotten off track, that the wheels are coming off the wagon? You know what the answer is? Sometimes a really long time. If you're not very sensitive to your heart, if you don't think about your thought life, if you're not contemplative about the actions and, of, of your life and the ethic, your, your value system, your worldview, your partnerships, you can be enslaved for a long time and wrecking your life and not even know it. But here's the beautiful thing about this particular story in Judges. The suffering was not in vain. The suffering, even though it's a long period of time, revealed their character. The suffering revealed their character. Really, the suffering got them to slow down long enough to try to figure out what in the world is going on. What is really going on in Israel and what is going on in me and going on inside of my life and my heart in relationship to God. They had been living outside the reality of God's will and God's judgment and all of a sudden they begin to realize that. They were in danger, like all of us, of an irreversible calamity had it not been or the suffering. Suffering has a redemptive side to it. After eight years of being subject to Kushan, the twice wicked, they come to their senses and they begin to ask, how in the world could this have happened? How is it that we have, as a part of our history, as a part of our history, when we think about our nation, we think about an exodus from an enslavement that we could never get ourselves out of. And the crossing of a sea when we were trapped by Pharaoh's army that we would have been slaughtered by those chariots coming down on top of us had it not been for God. And those Amalekites out there in the desert wiping out those that were straggling behind the old people, those with young that were straggling behind the group. Had it not been for God, and had it not been for God, we would have starved. Our bones would have been out in the desert. We would have died of thirst, died of hunger. It's God that brings us across the Jordan. It's God that brings us into a place where we see a gigantic city that we ourselves cannot take unless He bring the walls down. They come to a place 
where they begin to ask, how in the world did we, following a God of blessing like that, how did we get to the place where we have forsaken Him and now we are subject and enslaved to Kushan the twice wicked? How did that happen? And perhaps they began to, began to wonder about what flaws in them might have contributed to this. And what they discovered was that the flaw was in their relationship with God. Their relationship with God. And so verse 9, they cried out to the Lord, and He raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them, the Spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge, and he went to war. And the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, the embodiment of evil, the king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. Overpowered the embodiment of evil. You know what God does? God raises up a deliverer. And into the human trouble, God sends this deliverer. We're introduced to this particular one, Othniel. We're introduced to him back in Judges chapter 1. You remember that Othniel is the man who follows God wholeheartedly. He takes on the, the challenge of Caleb, and he, take on, he takes the city. He takes on the mission. And now God's Spirit comes upon him as the people are enslaved to sin and to the idols. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and Othniel enters the fray on behalf of the people. He takes on the embodiment of evil who has enslaved the people and brings the people freedom and a peace that continues. Sort of reminds me of a modern Othniel. You'll remember that for four centuries there was a period of time in the history of the world where God was, was seemingly absent. Not a word being spoken. The prophets have dried up and have become silent. And people are waiting and people are waiting and people are waiting. And it's Rome that seems to be in control of the world. There's another empire that is on, you know, one after another. But now this Roman Empire that is taking over everything. And life is rough. Economically, things are not all that great in the north, in, in northern Galilee. People are losing the, the, the family land. In the south, people are really concerned about what's happening at that temple. Ever since the, the, uh, the, uh, the Maccabean revolt and the Hasmoneans have taken over, there have been certain segments of the Jewish people that wouldn't even set foot in the temple because they thought it was apostate. And Rome is there, and there's a Hellenization that's going on inside of Israel, and people are beginning to wonder if God is ever going to speak again. But there's still that group of people who are thinking and wondering and wondering and thinking and praying and fasting and fasting and praying and wondering and at the end of 400 years, into the darkness comes light. Into the fray on behalf of humans that are enslaved, not just to an empire, but a whole world that is enslaved to the embodiment of evil. There comes one whom the Spirit of God falls on and empowers him into ministry. And he goes into the fray, he goes into the war, and he wins not just for 40 years, but he wins for all of eternity and becomes the first fruit of the resurrection, Jesus of Nazareth. And we see a foreshadowing of Jesus in Othniel. The question is, have we begun to contemplate and to, to think deeply and to think slowly about our own life? 
have we come to the place where we discovered that maybe our life is not going in the direction that we would like for it to go, that it's not successful in the way that we would hope for it to be successful, that there would be that sense of significance. It has nothing to do with money, but the sense of significance, that it's meaningful, that there's something compelling, that, that life is gripping, that it's worth living. And all of a sudden you realize that that's not really a way that you describe your own life, that it's really empty. It seems you don't see very far down the road and see anything very, very compelling. That's why God has raised up Jesus of Nazareth. To bring His kingdom home, not just in a, in a, a, a space, but to bring His kingdom into your heart and to defeat evil in your heart and in your soul. And for you to find that forgiveness that's going to bring you a peace and a freedom, a freedom from death and a peace with God so that you become a child of God. That's what God does when He raises up Jesus. Born of a virgin, left heaven, Philippians chapter 2, born of a woman, becomes a human, and not just a human, but a servant, and not just a servant and somebody that's obedient, but one who is obedient on the cross in order for us to be saved. If that describes you tonight, we're going to have a couple of our shepherds down here at the front during the singing of this next song. They would love for you to come down to the front and to talk to them about the desire of your heart to find that peace and to find that freedom that's ultimately found in the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and talk to you about you how you, you come into that relationship with God through Jesus tonight. If that describes you, come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God together. In vain and high and holy land.